0: man alive what in the world's going on with that microphone and uh good to see you live stream this evening we're going to be looking in micah chapter uh, seven uh this is our last uh, lesson going through the book of micah so i'll give you some time to uh open up there remember this sunday is the anniversary of our church 40 years of ministry here in tom's river we have uh the Morel's uh, going to be singing in the morning service. That's a 9 o'clock service and 10.30 service. Remember, the times are changed for this weekend. So 9 a.m. church worship will be in-person, uh, live stream, and also children's church at 9 a.m. And uh, then 10.30 will be uh, just in-person uh, worship. And both of those services, all three of those services, I should say, the morels will be uh, singing in both of those services. And then the uh, Dr. Shoemaker will be preaching. So we want you to be a part of that. Remember also that Sunday night at 6 o'clock is our evening service. And we'll be having an ordination service. We'll actually be having laying on of hands of several young men. will be ordained in the gospel ministry. That is, if they pass the ordination council on Saturday. So that'll be fun uh, to do that. And so we want you to be a part of all that next week, Monday, Tuesday. Shoemaker will be preaching each night. We'll be having special music. So uh, we want you to come and and, uh, enjoy uh, the time fellowshipping with other believers. But most of all ready to hear something from God. Uh, we want the Lord to really do something special in our heart, in our life, and uh, so you be praying that God will speak to us uh, in those revival meetings each night, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday at 7 p.m. All right, by now you ought to be in the book of Micah, in uh, Micah chapter 7, and we're going to uh, look at this for a few moments. We saw last week three times in chapter 6. Uh, Micah cries out, hear ye, hear ye. And uh, uh, since they would not respond, they would not listen to what he had to say, this message from God. Uh, Now in chapter 7 and verse 1, notice what he says. He says, woe is me. Uh, If we don't listen to God when he has something for us to hear, um, it'll put us in a woeful state. And uh, things will be out of control, things will be not what they should be, and certainly it will cause us to come up wanting. The social and religious condition in Jerusalem was deplorable when Micah was writing this. And that's why he cries out, woe is me, because he's wondering what in the world is going to be the outcome uh, based on uh, what is going on in Israel. And so Micah knew Uh, that in uh, these desperate times that he was living in, that God was going to do something special in the people of God. And I think as we look at the world we're living in, it's deplorable. It's wicked. It's full of debauchery and, and sinfulness and depravity. And we look at it and we say, what in the world? Woe is me that I have to live during this time period. Well, remember this, look up. Because of the fact that God, I believe, is going to do something miraculous. And he wants to do something that will bring glory to himself in blessing his people. And so let's look at this chapter and just uh, kind of unfold it a little bit. And notice, first of all, in verse 1 through 6, uh, we've uh, entitled that. uh, He was faced with bitter disappointment. And uh, there are disappointments in our lives that uh, overwhelm us. And how are we going to respond to those disappointments will make all the difference in the world of how God can bless and move in our life in, in spite of those circumstances and situations. So he faced bitter disappointment. First of all, verse 1, he faced bitter disappointment because of spiritual barrenness. Notice in verse 1, Woe is me, for I am as when they have gathered the summer fruits. As the grape gleanings of the vintage, uh, there is no cluster uh, to uh, eat. My soul desired the first ripe fruit. And so he says, I'm as if the summer is ended and the fruit has been gathered. What is he saying? There's no fruit left. There's nothing else to eat. I would look for and long for uh, the gleanings of fresh uh, cluster of grapes, but there's no grapes there because the harvest is past and is done, and so uh, the the uh, vine would be barren. And he's speaking in reference to the condition in Israel. There was spiritual barrenness in Israel. That's why Lamentations. If you wanted to turn it over there, if you turn back a little bit, right after the book of Jeremiah, have uh, the book of Lamentations. Jeremiah wrote Lamentations as a means of weeping because of the condition of his people. In Lamentations chapter 2, in verse 8, it says, The Lord hath purposed to destroy the wall of the daughter of Zion. He hath stretched out a line. He hath not withdrawn his hand from destroying. Therefore he made the rampart and the wall to lament thy languished I'm sorry, they languish together. Her gates are sunk into the ground. Uh, He hath destroyed and broken her bars. Her king and her princes are among the Gentiles. The law is no more. Her prophets also find no vision from the Lord. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit upon the ground and keep silence. Uh, They cast up dust upon their heads. Now, they have girded themselves with sackcloth, the virgins of Jerusalem hang down their heads to the ground. What is he doing? He's lamenting the spiritual barrenness in Israel. And if there's one thing I think we ought to do as believers. There ought to be a sense of disappointment and mourning over the spiritual barrenness in the world in which we live a uh, weeping and a burden and a disappointment of a spiritual barrenness within the church. And uh, uh, it causes us uh, to be faced with bitter disappointments, the spiritual condition, being barren of the fruit of the Holy Spirit of, of God in our life. And so I see spiritual barrenness caused to have bitter disappointment. In verse 2, I see there was adversarial Aggressiveness. Notice in verse 2 it says the good man is perished out of the earth. Uh, there is none upright among men. They all lie in wait for blood. They hurt every man his brother with a net. And so adversarial aggressiveness, because of the fact that the society, the world is barren in righteousness, they're barren in anything that is spiritual it causes them to be very aggressive uh, against uh, mankind and not really care about life whatsoever. And it's because of their demeanor. In Romans chapter 3, in verse 10, Paul outlines it this way. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. And he goes on, he says, there's none that understandeth, there's none that seeketh after God, they are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their uh, throat is an open sepulcher, and the tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouths is full of cursings and uh, bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. The way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes." And so literally Micah is crying out in reference, the good man has perished. There's no one that's good that's left. Uh, they continually, because of their depravity, are seeking the the blood of others. They want to hurt every man they can get their hands on. And why is that? It's because of the condemnation of God upon them because they do not want God, they don't want to seek God, because they're spiritually barren, Uh, they become very aggressive and uh, very adversarial in fighting others. You know, you look at the world and you say, man, there just seems like there's so much hatred in the world and where we live and what's going on in the days in which we live. Why is that? I'll tell you why. It's because man has moved away from God. He has turned his back on God. And, and if you're not living for the Lord, you don't have the love of Christ in your heart, uh, then you'll become very aggressive against others because you just want to be able to get yourself ahead. You want to be able to increase what you have, and you don't care who you hurt in the process. So adversarial aggressiveness. Notice in verse 3, he was bitterly disappointed because of judicial corruptness. In verse 3, he says that they may do evil with both hands earnestly. The prince asketh, and the judge asketh for a reward. In other words, they want to be paid off. They ask for a reward, and the great man, he uttereth his mischievous desire, so they wrap it up. So, judicial corruptness. Uh, you would think that you would be able to get a good, sound judgment, justice in the court of law, but they were so corrupt, they were being bribed, they were being bought off. And you look at the world in which we live, and oftentimes they we say, well, where is the justice? Uh, where, where is this sense of doing right? Uh, and it seems like uh, it just, there's always there's someone that's ready to pay off to get his way or to get his judgment that he wants. And so the grief, bitter disappointment To see judicial corruptness. In verse 4 and 5, notice there was social abrasiveness. In uh, verse 4, it says this, the best of them is as a briar. What a sad statement. I I read that. I read this chapter three or four times this afternoon. And uh, every time I read this chapter and I read this verse, the best of them is as a briar can you imagine, the very best that you can find in society is a burr, as it were. We used to say it's a burr under the saddle. And, uh, and they're at best a briar that's jabbing and poking and causing sores to be uh, formed. It says, the most upright is sharper than a thorn hedge. The day of thy watchman and thy visitation cometh and now shall be their perplexity, the social abrasiveness that was going on. Judges chapter 16, we read of Delilah with Samson and how she would question him and try to trick him and plead with him and just constantly drive him to let her let her know uh, why uh, he had such great strength. And, uh, you know, the, the amazing thing is this. It wasn't for... Uh, bringing glory or praise to God, it was so that unjust, unfit, wicked men who wanted to hurt someone else and wanted to despise the God of Israel, wanted to defeat the people of Israel, wanted to capture this man of God, the abrasiveness, the social abrasiveness of constantly pushing and pushing and pushing to finally he gave in and he revealed it and he lost everything. And that's what happens in the world that we live in socially. The the unsaved is always pushing, always pushing, always wanting more, always wanting you to compromise, always wanting you to give up. Not for your benefit, it's for the purpose of overcoming you and destroying you. Social abrasiveness. The world is, listen, it's getting farther and farther away from God. I mean, we in New Jersey just approved... A, uh, marijuana that's going to make a lot of sense people driving down the road high on drugs and uh, uh, but oh you got to keep doing it gotta, they've been pushing they've been trying to get it through trying to get it through trying to get it through did they give up no they kept going till they finally got it through now just think how many people are going to get hooked on drugs because of this stupid marijuana Uh, You know, you say, well, man, I'll tell you, you should be speaking out about things like that. No, that's social abrasiveness. This thing about, you know, abortion. You know, it started out, oh, a woman should have a right to care for her body. And uh, we need to uh, end an abortion if we don't want to have that child. But now it's got to a place, let's go ahead and have the child delivered and let's kill it. Why? Because that's what social abrasiveness does. It pushes and it pushes and it pushes. It's never satisfied until it takes everything. And the Christian needs to take a stand and say, I'm bitterly disappointed with this attitude and these trends. And so we're going to say, what does the word of God have to say? And that's where we're going to stand. Social abrasiveness. I see in verse 6 unnaturally opposite. Verse 6 says, For the son dishonors the father, the daughter rises up against her mother, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. That is unnaturally opposed. It is not a natural thing for daughters to rise up against their mothers. It is not natural for young men to rise up against their fathers. And we have come to a point, where even in Christian circles, where counselors, I've heard different counselors say, well, you just got to acknowledge, you know, in those teen years, they're just rebellious and you just got to kind of do it with it and let them go through. That is unnatural. The natural thing is that we honor our father and mother and we praise our God and we worship the Lord Jesus Christ. We do not stand on opposite sides against one another. But may I say this, when you get farther and farther away from God, the bitter disappointment is the family becomes a dysfunctional institution. The family does not function and operate the way God designed it to function and operate. God designed it for one man to marry one woman and have children be fruitful and multiply. And they as a family worship their God and they work and serve one another to support one another in perfect harmony. That was the intention and purpose of God when he formed the family. But no, we don't want to do that. We want to act like it's a natural thing. It's a good thing. It's an honorable thing for us to be against our parents, our parents against their children, or in-laws against their in-laws. Uh, no, that's an unnatural opposition. So uh, Micah says this, I'm faced with a bitter disappointment because that is not the intention that God had for the family. Then we see in verse 7 through 13, Focused, He was focused on a righteous God. Uh, His disappointment was overwhelming him, but he realized that he needed to focus on his righteous God. Notice in uh, verse 7 through 9, there's a personal affirmation. Verse 7, it says, Therefore I will look unto the Lord, I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me, rejoice not against me, O mine enemy, when I fall, I shall arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord shall be a light unto me. And so notice, first of all, personal affirmation in reference to focusing on the righteousness of God. He just says this, I will look. He knew where he had to look. We, we looked at that passage on Sunday in Psalm 56. What time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. When things are hard and things are difficult and seems like the world is corrupt and it seems like everything out is out of control and the world is existing in a state of dysfunctionality, that's a time when we have personal affirmation in our hearts that we are going to look to the Lord. Amen. So I will look. Notice in verse 7, he says, I will wait. He says, I will look unto the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. Uh, they that wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. And we have to wait on God to let God work his will and his timing. Micah wanted a revival. He wanted the people of Israel to turn to their God. But he had to acknowledge the fact that he was going to have to wait on God to do something miraculous in his life and in the world in which he lived. And so he says, I will look, I will wait. And then he says, I will pray. And I put some references in your Bible lessons there uh, that you can look up as cross references. But he says, my God will hear me. Well, how's God going to hear him? He's going to hear him because he's praying to his God. And the way we deal with the world that we're dealing with is we look to the Lord, waiting for his perfect will to be accomplished, Knowing that when I pray, when I cry out to him, that God's going to listen to my cries. He's going to hear the pleads of my heart. And because he'll hear me, then I know this, that he's going to respond to what I'm crying out to him for. And then in verse 8, he says, I will rise. And verse 8 says, Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy. Oh, how the enemy likes to rejoice when they see you've fallen by the wayside. He says, Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy. When I fall, I shall arise. And so he no- acknowledges the fact that a righteous man will fall seven times, but he'll get up again. And it, I heard old preacher say years ago, it's not about uh, how many times the old dog falls. It's about how many times the old dog gets back up. And uh, you get in the fight, it's not how many times you fall, it's how many times you're going to get back up. And, and Mike is crying out, look, you may rejoice and you might be excited about the fact that I have stumbled and fallen, but don't rejoice over me because I'm telling you right now, when I fall, I'm going to get back up again. And you may stumble and you might fall and you might have difficulties in your life and you may have disappointments you're trying to have to overcome, but realize this, you might be knocked down, but you don't have to stay down. You can get back up again. He says, the Lord shall be a light in verse 9. He says, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. Until he plead my cause and execute judgment for me, he will bring forth to the light. And so he says this, it doesn't matter what's going on. That God is going to be a light unto me. He is going to shine and show me the path that I am to live. God's going to confirm His will in my life. And so don't don't be bearing indignation against me. I'll bear my own indignation uh, because the Lord is the one who pleads my case, He pleads my cause. And He is the one that will execute judgment. And when He executes that judgment, He will bring to light what it is he's trying to do in my life. Then he says, "This I shall behold." Notice in verse nine, the last sentence there, he says, "I shall behold his righteousness." And I thought, I just thought of this: what a glorious thing it will be when we get in the presence of God. When we get in the presence of the Lord and we see him in all of his glory, we see him in all of his righteousness, we see him in all of his splendor, we see him in all of his authority, we see the angels of heaven bowing down before him, we see the saints throughout the ages worshiping and praising him, I'm going to tell you, we're going to behold the righteousness of God. And so he deals with this whole thing here of uh, despising the wicked, depending upon the righteous, acknowledging personally uh, who God is and what he needs to do to keep his life uh, in tune with his walk with God. Then there's a theological indignation here, not just a personal affirmation, but there is a theological uh, uh, indignation that is expressed. Notice in verse 10, says then she that is mine enemy shall see it I'm going to see what being lifted up not falling down and staying down getting back up again walking in the light of God uh, enjoying and beholding the righteousness of his savior says so then shall uh, she that is mine enemy shall see it and i i like that when he says that because you be aware of this when God is doing something in your life people see it it says, and shame shall cover her, which said unto me, where is the Lord thy God? Oh, they may mock you, and they may ridicule you, because they say, well, the world is depraved, the world is wicked, things don't seem like they're getting better, you're stumbling, you're falling, you're struggling, you're under the chastening hand of God, so where is this Lord of yours? And he says, the enemy is going to be brought to shame. They're gonna cry out to God, they're gonna mock God, but they're gonna stand there in their shame before the Lord. Not only will they be brought to shame, but the enemy shall be trodden down. It says, mine eyes shall behold her, now shall she be trodden down as the mire of the streets. The enemy may think they're strong, they might think they're able to overcome us, but the reality is when God stands and fights for his people. The enemy is brought to shame as they are trodden down. I was reading one commentary on this when he said it about the being trodden down. They said it's like a worm that's down in the ground. And you see that worm, and right away, they try, the worm will try to pull away from you to go hide down in the ground. But still, you can walk over top of him and tread on top of that worm. And that's what the enemy does. It tries to hide away into its darkness. He it tries to hide away uh, in reference to God's light, it tries to hide away from the reality of what God's doing in your life and thinking they're going to get away with it. But the reality is God's still going to trample them down. So focus on the righteousness of God. There's theological indignation. Notice in verse 11 through 13, there's prophetic proclamation. Prophetic proclamation verse 11 says in that day that thy walls are to be built in that day shall the decree be far removed and that day also he shall come even to thee from Assyria and from the fortified cities and from the fortress even to the river and from the sea from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain notwithstanding the land shall be desolate before because of them that dwell therein for the fruit of their doings. And so, prophetic proclamation is this. Uh, number one, it would just be this the rebuilding of the wall. That certainly is a reference to Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 17, Nehemiah chapter 3 and verse 1. Uh, Nehemiah would be led of God to build the wall around Jerusalem, but you understand that that wall that would be built is prophetically fulfilling the reality that God was going to give his people freedom. And uh, they were in bondage, but God was going to set them free. So the rebuilding of the wall. We have the removal of the decree. And the decree was that they were to be in bondage. But when God would so lead and grant, uh, Nehemiah, opportunity to rebuild the walls, the matter of being in bondage and captivity was over. And they were able to come back into the land. And then, because you'd have Nehemiah rebuilding the wall, you have Ezra rebuilding the temple, and the people of God would come back into the land and worship their God. Why? Because Micah is revealing that there would be a time that God would set his people free. Then there was the regathering of the people. And, of course, this is looking prophetically that God's going to regather his people because he says, "...in that day also shall ye come out even unto thee from Assyria." God would take them out of the Assyrian captivity. Uh, From the fortified cities and from uh, fortresses, even to the river, from the sea to sea, and from mountain to mountain, just thinking of how God's going to regather his people from around uh, the four corners of the world and bring them back to his promised land that he had gave to Abraham. And then I see in verse 13 the remorse over their doings. It says, notwithstanding the land shall be desolate because of them that dwell therein, For the fruit of their doings, remorse over the outcome of what they did. Man, Listen, man may enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, but I'll tell you, when you start reaping the consequences, then there's remorse over your doings. And so prophetic proclamation. I see also in verse 14 through 20, forgiven by a merciful God. And why could he look forward to a time of restoration for Israel Because in the midst of God's wrath and God's judgment, God still is a God of mercy and a God of grace. And yes, God brings his judgment on this world. I believe the Lord's trying to get our attention right now with all that we see going on in the world. I think it's the chastening hand of God. I really do. But I also see in the midst of the chastening hand of God, I see the mercy of God. And notice his mercy is extended according to God's ...marvelous works. Notice in verse 14, he says, "...feed thy people with thy rod the flock of thine inheritance... ...I'm sorry, the flock of thine heritage... uh, ...which dwells solitarily in the wood, in the midst of Carmel. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. According to the days of thy coming out of the land of Egypt... ...will I show unto him marvelous things... The mercy of God that brought them out of bondage in Egypt. The mercy of God. Psalm 78. Read the whole Psalm 78. I put down a few verses here in Psalm 78. But Psalm 78 is a powerful psalm that speaks of God's leading his people and delivering them and setting them free. And why would that take place? Because of God's mercy. It was a marvelous work that God did in bringing them out of Egypt. They were dealing with captivity. They were dealing with oppression. Micah's prophesying in reference to the corruption that they're facing and living through. But God reminds them, wait a minute, I'm a merciful God because I do marvelous works for your, my people Israel. And may we remember that God does do marvelous works for us. And uh, he is a good and gracious God because of his mercy that he has extended to us. So I see for forgiven by a merciful God according to God's marvelous works. In verse 16 and verse 17, according to God's mighty works, notice in verse 16, the nations shall see and be confounded at all their might. They shall lay their hand upon their mouth, their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, and they shall move out of their holes like worms of the earth, and they shall be afraid of the Lord our God, and shall fear because of thee, Uh, the the mighty works of God. Uh, You know, Pharaoh trembled at the mighty works of God. Uh, You know, the people of Jericho trembled at the mighty works of God. When Israel would come into Canaan land and take the possession of the land that God would give them, the people around Israel would tremble at the thought of the God of Israel. And so his mighty works, he is almighty, he is all powerful, uh, he is strong enough to do his bidding and his will regardless of who is on the throne and who is in control of whatever. So we have a merciful God, according to God's marvelous works and His mighty works. Then in verse eighteen and nineteen, I see uh, according to God's mysterious work. His mysterious work. Work in verse eighteen. It says, "Who is like? I'm sorry. Who is a God like unto thee, that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of His heritage?" He retaineth not his anger forever because he delighteth in mercy. He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities and thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. And so here is a, we're forgiven by a merciful God according to his mysterious works. How would a God be so merciful and so gracious that he could pardon all the iniquities of his people. How could there be a God that would be so mysterious and have such a great work that he would set his people free by the pardoning of our iniquity? The word iniquity there means our perversity and depravity. And Micah is saying it is an alarming thing, it's an amazing thing, that God would be that gracious and forgiving when you consider how perverse we are, when you consider how depraved we are. And listen, the world we're living in is so perverted and so depraved, you say, can look at it and say, how can God do anything? God in his mercy can do a mysterious work and taking the most filthy and wicked person and saving their soul, and cleansing them, and setting them free from their iniquity. Not only he pardons iniquity, but he passes by the transgression. He says in verse 18, and passes by the transgression. A mysterious work that God would pass by our transgression. A transgression is rebellion. In other words, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. God requires of us to obey what he has said, but we have transgressed his law. We have refused to obey what he has said. We, in our rebellion, God has yet, because he is merciful, has promised that he would pass by that rebellion by setting us free in that state. Notice, he retaineth his anger. He says in verse 18... He retaineth not his anger forever. And so thinking about this retaineth his anger means to be strong or to be firm in his position. But Micah is reminding us because God is a merciful God, he will not retain his anger against us forever. In other words, when you receive Christ as your Savior, you're no longer the enemy God, now you're in favor with God. And why is that? You say, that's a mysterious work that God could do in a person's life. How can he do it? Because he does not retain his anger forever. And so he uh, forgives us and cleanses us by his mercy. Why would he do that? It's a mysterious thought. He does that because he delights in mercy. Notice the last part of verse 18, because he delighteth in mercy. In other words, God enjoys mercy extending mercy to us. To delight means to take pleasure in. God enjoys, he rejoices in the fact that he extends mercy to us so that we might be able to be set free. You know, mercy is God not giving us what we deserve. We deserve the wrath and the judgment of God. We deserve to burn in hell. We deserve to have nothing to enhance our life whatsoever. But because God is a merciful God, he will delight, he'll enjoy, he'll rejoice in the fact that he can extend mercy towards us. Well, it continues to build because it says this, he has compassion upon us. In verse 19 says, he will turn again. He will have compassion on us. Uh, this can all take place. The mercy of God releases the compassion of God. And the word compassion here means to have love that is deep, uh, a love that is so uh, deep that it, it is, is stronger, it's deeper, it's wider, it's more uh, life-impacting, uh, That anything that you can do in your life, the love of Christ uh, outweighs all the wickedness and sinfulness that we commit. Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross, said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And he said that because... Greater love hath no man than a man shall lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus demonstrated the love of God by dying on the cross for us because God is the one who has compassion upon us. And then I see in verse 19, he subdues our iniquities. He will subdue our iniquities. The word subdue means to force or to keep underneath. People say, you just don't understand, I have temptations, I have problems, I have addictions, I have whatever you want to name. I have these things and they just overwhelm me. No, you need to understand the mercy of God that subdues those things. God puts them under his authority. God puts them underneath of his power. He subdues our iniquities. Then notice in verse 19, he casts away our sins. It says, and thou will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. I'm thankful that the mercy of God throws my sins away. It literally means cast, cast our, oh, all of our sins. The word cast there means to fling away, just to throw it away. And you trust Christ your Savior, he throws your sins away. He throws them out into the deepest sea so that they will remember it no more you say, well, I don't understand how that can take place. Well, that's that's what a merciful God does. And then in verse 20, he ends the chapter and he ends this letter with a statement that this merciful God is according to God's memorable work. God's memorable work. Thou wilt perform the truth to Jacob and the mercy to Abraham, which thou hast sworn unto our fathers from the days of old. Three things here to think about according to God's memorable working. First of all, the truth of Jacob just simply means bringing into a clear light than which had been partially hidden. God has promised that he would perform the truth of Jacob. And uh, you re- we know that Jacob uh, was the father of many, of a, of a major nation, the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel made up of the 12 tribes or sons of Jacob, uh, the things that God had promised that he would do uh, through Jacob uh, are fulfilled in the God of the Bible that Micah is prophesying about, that God would perform the truth of Jacob. Things that were hid, things that were couldn't be comprehended, things that could not be understood, God fulfilled them in Jacob. But also, he says here, and the mercy to Abraham. And the mercy to Abraham deals with understanding favor showed to the undeserving. And we oftentimes, we forget that, wait a minute, mercy of God does not mean that we have to do something that is deserving. The mercy of God is seen through Abraham. It says that by faith, Abraham. You read in Hebrews chapter 11, it constantly speaks about the faith of Abraham. And it talks about the, that righteousness was imputed to Abraham. How? By faith that he had. Uh, he didn't get the righteousness of God. He was not considered a, a friend of God or a child of God uh, because of what he deserved to get. He experienced those things because of the merciful God. And so we have the truth of Jacob. We have the mercy of Abraham. Then ultimately, we see that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. This, uh, this matter of uh, God performing what He has sworn unto His people Israel. John chapter one. We'll close with John chapter one and verse fifteen uh, through eighteen. John chapter one and verse fifteen says, "John bear witness of Him, and cried, saying." This was he of whom I speak. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness have all we received grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared him. And so the grace of God is experienced through Christ because God showed mercy towards Jacob and Abraham in fulfilling the prophecy of old in reference to his willingness to establish a nation and people. And ultimately, it would be the Lord Jesus Christ. So when you think of Micah, as you think of the book of Micah, as he finished up his this book in the chapter 7, uh, don't forget that he was facing times of bitter disappointment. And every one of us are going to through, go through times of specific disappointments in our life. But remember, when that comes, the focus on a righteous God. God is still holy. He's still righteous. He's still on the throne. And so we look towards him. Why? Because... He is always willing to forgive us. Uh, He is a forgiving, merciful God. And if you're watching live stream tonight and you're not sure you're saved, I want you to know the Lord loves you and he has enough grace and mercy to save you. I want you to know that he has the ability to make a difference in your life. You're a child of God. Then live in light of this mercy and grace that has been extended to you through faith in Jesus Christ. What a glorious book, this book of Micah. I hope it's been a blessing to you and a help to you as we've studied the Word of God together. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for allowing us to be together tonight, be able to study the Word. Thank you. It's so precious uh, to think that God is such a merciful God. A uh, God who is righteous and a God who executes judgment and justice, but is a God who extends mercy and grace. And so, Lord, I pray you bless us as we consider our relationship with this holy God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.